You are listening to the sermon podcast from Bethel Covenant Church. We're an evangelical church located outside Ellsworth, Wisconsin. And in order to love our neighbors during the COVID-19 pandemic, we are currently not gathering in person, but you can join us live online on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Bethel Covenant Church. We have a live stream every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Thanks for listening. We started in Matthew all the way back in December together, and we've been walking through um, what's called the Gospel of Matthew, the good news of Matthew, trying to understand um, who Jesus is, what it means to be his disciple, and what is so good about that good news. Uh, So we're about to finish that in Matthew 28 with kind of the last conflict that happens in the in the book. Uh, Matthew's all about conflicts, the conflicts of kind of two kingdoms, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. Now, the kingdom of earth represented by, you know, the empire, the Roman empire, by revolutionaries in Jesus' day, and even represented by the, the priests and the religious leaders are constantly resisting what Jesus is doing and bringing God's rule down to earth. And Matthew 28 contains sort of the last conflict between the kingdom of earth and the kingdom of heaven in Matthew. And it's a conflict that sort of repeats for us all throughout history and, and even to, to today. So I think it's especially relevant even in times like this. Um, and I know this, this goes without saying that we're living in a moment where it's harder to hold on to maybe that hope in the kingdom of heaven I think we're living in a moment where the things that we thought we could put our trust in, the things that we thought we could set our clocks by are crumbling away. The things that we thought were going to take care of us no matter what happened uh, are gone. I, I don't know about you, but our, our contingency plans that we thought we'd always have are, are sort of changing. Um, human structures that I used to think of as, as regular as the seasons aren't happening. Uh, my heart has been breaking this week for our graduating seniors. Uh, when I moved to the Midwest, I, um, the whole graduation party thing is just, it's just a part of the spring. It's what you do. You go to somebody's house, you eat some awesome food, you bring a card, the food comes in a roaster, you know, and, and it sits there all day and it's, it's good all day and you eat a big piece of cake and everybody sits around at everyone's house for the whole month of May and June. And it breaks my heart that when that happens this year, it's, if it happens, it's going to look really different. It breaks my heart that seniors aren't going to get to walk across the stage. Things that we used to set our clocks by, things that we've looked forward to for years are not happening. And I, and I am praying every day for you if you're a, a senior high, if you're a senior in high school, or even if you're finishing middle school or elementary school or whatever, I know um, it's, it's heartbreaking. And it's impossible for me to know exactly what you're going through, but know that I'm praying for you and tons of us are um, because we're in this time where, where everything about our way of life, things that we thought of as the most normal things in the world are, are shaking. The ground is, is shaking. Um, underneath our feet. We're, we're living through, and, you know, I talked about last week and it's been and hitting me this way. It's a, it's, it's a slow motion car crash. And again, some of us are feeling it more than others, but the likelihood is that we're going to be feeling the impact of this slow motion car crash for 
days and months and probably years. Um, they're going to make a mark on us. These weeks and the ways that the things that we're doing now are, are going to impact us um, for most of our lives. You know, our seniors, you guys are always going to remember that you didn't walk in that traditional way that, that basically everybody had before you. And, and it's heartbreaking. And, and it, it, today and right now, it's a cause for mourning. Um, I was reading an article the other day about how um, in any kind of disaster or difficult situation, it usually takes about 30 days um, for people to start to reach their breaking point. And I am feeling really aware that I, at times, am close to my breaking point. And I'm sure some of you, many of you are as well. Um, because most people, we can do anything for a month. But, you know, it's, it's so difficult. And so if you're, you're at that breaking point, you know, it's, there's so much to, to mourn. And, and what often happens and, and where some of us go is we, we have this strong temptation. You know, we lay aside the early hope. Oh, you know, oh, things are okay. We'll figure it out. Yep, yep, yep. You know, and, and we start letting fear come back in. We start letting anger rule our days and our emotions. And I'm seeing it all over. I'm seeing it myself. I'm seeing it uh, in my family. I'm seeing it in the people that I run into. It's, it's scary. And so the question to me is, as the church, right? As the body of Christ on earth, what does it mean to live out faith in this moment? How should we be responding? How can we bring hope? Because as worried and hopeless and uncertain as we may feel now, um, one of the questions we have to be asking ourselves and each other and encouraging each other in this way is how can we be good news people even in these circumstances? If God is really at work in us and in our world, he's at work in us and at work in these circumstances too. So how can we bring hope to people who just like us are feeling it? To people who just like us are, are nearing their breaking point, but they maybe don't have anything to hold on to. And so last week, you know, we, we read the story of the resurrection. We celebrated Easter and we looked at what our ultimate hope is for times like these and others. Uh, we read about how even death itself was defeated in Jesus' resurrection. We saw that even though um, humans and empires and, and spiritual religious leaders and, and all the forces of evil worked together to put to death the very Son of God. We saw that even though all the forces of evil in the world teamed up to kill Jesus, his body um, came out of that tomb on Easter morning. Uh, we discover that he didn't lay dead. We talked about this this last week, that the good news is that death is defeated. And that good news completely transformed the Roman world. Every uh, culture, every community, every nation, every people group that's come in contact with that news has changed. You know, read, read your history books. And it's, and it's still changing people today. That good news that death is defeated is still changing people today. The tomb is empty. And, and like the Gospel of Mark if you've read the Gospel of Mark, it, it ends with that. It just ends. The tomb is empty. People don't know what to do. Look to history for what comes next. But, but Matthew, Matthew tells one more story after the tomb is empty. Matthew doesn't end on that, that climax moment. Instead, for some reason, the author of Matthew, empowered by the Holy Spirit, decided to include one more story of conflict. 
One more story of that battle between heaven and earth and the way that Jesus was always fighting with the religious leaders of his day. And it seems that even though Jesus rose from the dead, he's not done dealing with the forces of evil. And so, uh, and it's funny, I almost skip right over this part because it just doesn't, uh, especially this next part, because it doesn't always seem important. But I think Jesus and his last words to the disciples are responding to what we're about to read here. And, and I think they're really, really important here in Matthew 11, um, or Matthew 28, 11 through 15. Um, so I don't know, you probably can't see that too well on there, but I thought I'd give it a try anyway. Um, but but let's, let's hear from scripture. Um, As the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and told the leading priest what had happened, right? The tomb is empty. The women see Jesus. They run to tell the disciples. And the guards, they run a different direction. So the women go here and the guards head off this way. They tell the, the high priest. And so the high priests get together, they hear this news, and they, they hold a meeting. Um, uh, they call a meeting together of the elders, the religious leaders. And it says they decide to give the soldiers a large bribe, a large uh, bunch of money. They told the soldiers, you must say that Jesus' disciples came in the middle of the night while we were sleeping, and they stole his body. And I'll tell you what, the priests say, if the governor hears about it, don't worry. We'll stand up for you so you won't get in trouble. We'll give you this money. Just tell this lie for us and we'll make sure that nothing bad happens to you. And the guards, you know, they say, okay, well, it's much better than what normally happens to guards who fall asleep on the job. So they take, take the bribe. It says the guards accepted the bribe and said what they were told to say. Their story spread widely among the Jews and they still tell it today. Uh, so, you know, I don't know if, if you see that, right? So the guards who saw the angel, the guards who fainted at the tomb and saw it empty, um, just like the, the women saw the, you know, the angel and they go to tell the other disciples, the guards go to tell their team and the religious leaders who've been battling with Jesus, who put Jesus to death, um, as soon as they hear that story, they don't even think about what that might mean for them. They don't even think about what that might mean about what they had done. They're already in too deep. Their hearts are too hard. So the religious leaders come up with a plan to discredit the miracle. It's easy. We'll, we'll bribe the guards and, and they'll stop the story of the empty tomb from spreading. And it's interesting. It's amazing because even though death is defeated, even though Jesus walks out of the tomb after being crucified, even though the kingdom of heaven has come, the conflict between earth and heaven is still happening, right? And, and as you're reading this, and as you're reading Matthew, the, the question that I have is, what is Jesus going to do about it? How is Jesus going to challenge this lie? How's he going to stand up? What's Jesus going to do to prove the guards wrong, to prove the Pharisees wrong, to bring this, this lie out into the open? Well, uh, he, he does have a response. I believe our next uh, passage is, is all about that. Um, if you continue on, Jesus is going to ask his disciples, right, to meet him on a mountain. Um, important thing, little aside, whenever you see mountains in the Bible, it usually means somebody is, is connecting with God. Um, there's special places. If you look at a, at a hill or a mountain, uh, you ever notice how you can see sky and land touching each other? The idea is that, that mountains are where the heavens, the sky, and the earth come together. And so whenever you see a mountain in the Bible, um, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to see God encountering human beings on that mountain. When people want to find God, they go up into the mountain. So, so the disciples have been told they're going to go up into the mountain to meet their God. And the question is, what will God 
give them? What piece of evidence, what miracle, what proof will they come down that mountain with to defeat that bribe that the religious leaders gave the guards? And what will he give us to prove this thing that's really hard to prove? What is he going to give the disciples so that they can prove that Jesus did walk out of the tomb, that nobody stole that body, that he really is on the throne, that the story of the world is good news and not bad no matter what happens. Well, let's, let's take a look. This is what he gives them. Verse 16 through 20. So the 11 disciples, they left from Galilee going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some of them doubted. All right. The disciples go up the mountain. Um, and this is a little aside too, but I think it's really important. Um, some of them doubted. I think it's crucial. Um, so here's the 11 disciples. They've walked with Jesus this whole time. They're standing on the mountain with somebody that they saw die and some still doubted. Right here at the most convincing moment of Jesus' life, the most important part of the story, after they had been through so much, some doubt, and I just want you to notice two things. One, the doubt. And I think this is really important because it reminds us that it is normal and expected for believers to have the experience of doubt over a life of faith. If you've experienced doubt, you can count yourself just like one of Jesus' 11 closest disciples who stood on the mountain and saw him. Now, some people experience doubt more than others in their faith. Um, but do you see that, that? That even in that moment, people are struggling even as they stare at Jesus' face. I, I just think it's so important to remember. And the, and the second thing that is important to remember is not only do people doubt in all circumstances, even Jesus' closest disciples experience doubt. Um, the second thing is, in a minute, we're going to see how Jesus speaks to his disciples, including the doubters. And he doesn't speak to the doubters specifically. In fact, he does the opposite. He doesn't single them out. If you've read Matthew with us, you know that Jesus is able to know what people are thinking Often, he challenges the Pharisees on their thoughts frequently. Um, but instead of Jesus calling out the doubters, instead of singling them out and saying, okay, well, you guys who doubt, you know, head out and we'll just keep the true faithful ones. No, 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 no. He has them stand right alongside the ones without doubt in that moment. Jesus doesn't condemn them. He doesn't send them away. He doesn't say, you aren't qualified to serve as my disciples because you doubt. No, instead, he invites them on the same mission and call that he gives everybody else. And so if you're experiencing doubt today, I want you to know that this message, this mission, this call is for you. The same mission. Doubt at times is a part of faith for many of us. And when we doubt, we still can worship. We still can lean on each other for faith. It does not separate us from Jesus or his mission. Jesus believes in them. And when we doubt, he believes in us too. So uh, Jesus continues with his answer. What do you do? What do you do about uh, the lie? What do you do about the fact that people aren't going to believe that Jesus walked out of the tomb? How do you prove it? Well, uh, let's continue. Verse 18 it says, Jesus came and told his disciples... I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Uh, that's not on there. It says, I've been given all authority. Jesus says, I am king. I came to be the king of heaven and earth. I am king. I have the authority. 
Um, he sits on the throne. The battle is over, Jesus says. He says, I'm king, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Remember, before he said that to the doubters too, I am with you always, even till the end of the day, age. Um, and maybe you were hoping Jesus would send them back down with something they can hold in their hands. Um, you know, when Moses went up the mountain to meet God, God sent him down with stone tablets full of commands to share with the people, proof that he had encountered God in that fiery mountain. They took those tablets and they put them in the Ark of the Covenant so that they could hide them in there so that if they ever wanted to know about God, they could look at that box. They could look at that temple. They could look and know that the commandments were in there. But, but Jesus, he doesn't send stone tablets down the mountain with the disciples. He doesn't send a videotape of the resurrection down with the disciples. He doesn't send them with, with pictures. Um, he sends them back with a different sort of miracle. Matthew seems to think, uh, the author of Matthew, and history bears out that the greatest proof that Jesus rose from the dead are the people. The greatest proof that Jesus could send down the mountain with the disciples were the disciples themselves. The greatest proof that Jesus rose from the dead are the kinds of people and the lives that they live when they believe that it's true. Uh, the greatest proof, uh, and I, I have friends that are interested in archaeology and, and people in the church that are always like, oh, you know, did you hear? Maybe they saw some of Noah's Ark or they think might, this might have been the tomb that Jesus laid in. And finally, we have proof. And, and those are all interesting and exciting things. But, but the greatest proof, according to Scripture, according to Matthew, the greatest proof that the, the story of the world is one of hope is in the lives of people who are empowered by Jesus' presence in the lives of people who live like it's true. Instead of tablets or photographs, Jesus sends good news people, people who sometimes doubt, but who have been undeniably transformed by their connection to him and the work of the Holy Spirit. He says, uh, go and make more. Go and make more transformed people. Get involved in the lives of people. The discipleship-making process is a personal process. You spend time together. You deal with stuff together. You work together. He says, get involved with people and teach them what I taught you. Baptize them into my death and resurrection. And remember, you are not alone. I'm with you through everything. In other words, Jesus sends them down the mountain with themselves. Go and live like Jesus rose from the dead. Live like death doesn't get the last word. Because you can't prove the tomb is empty. Nobody can go back and find that tomb. And even if you could find the tomb that Jesus laid in, what difference does it make that it's empty? Right? There's no artifact you can show someone, no videotape, no historical record that can prove that Jesus walked out of the tomb. The only proof in the historical record and in our lives and in scripture, the only proof that we have in the middle of all these circumstances is the way that it impacted the lives of people that saw it happen. 
and the way that their lives impacted the lives of others and the lives of others impacted the lives of others and others and others and others all the way up until now. And Jesus' disciples, they did that. Empowered by Christ's presence with them, empowered and filled up by the Holy Spirit, um, they started doing that. They lived differently. They were the good news. And, and people have done that since now. They've carried that same hope and that same spirit. And you know how I know that's true? I know that because of my uh, grandparents and their grandparents. And I don't just mean biologically or genealogically. I mean in, in the faith. Because those disciples came down that mountain and they told somebody about what happened to them. And those people looked at their lives and they, they heard the lie from the Pharisees. But they saw what God was doing in them and they were convinced by that evidence and by the power of the Holy Spirit working together. And those people that the disciples convinced, their lives changed. And those changed lives changed other lives. And those changed lives changed other lives all the way up until you, you sit here today. And I'm willing to bet that if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you can think of one or two, maybe more people than that, whose lives and the work of God in their lives helped convince you that maybe there was something to this empty tomb. Because while they were baptizing those disciples and while they were sharing with others and teaching, um, while they were living with hope as friends and family perished in persecution, while they were living with hope and, and Christians throughout history were living with hope as natural disasters ravaged the earth, as plagues changed everything. Christians living with hope through world wars, Christians living through hope uh, through economic collapse, Christians living with hope under good leaders and under bad ones. And they convinced people because what they had was the work of Christ in them. What they had was the Holy Spirit empowering them. My friends, we are disciples of disciples of disciples of disciples of disciples of disciples, stretching all the way back to that mountaintop, occupied by Jesus and his sometimes doubting friends. And now we're here on that mountain with them. And you may be looking around and noticing that the places that you've put your hope and faith and trust in are shaking whether you've put your hope in, in your job or in the economy, whether you put your hope in scientists or politicians, whether you put your hope in nations or government, whether you put your hope in your plans and your backup plans and your backup plans for your backup plans, whether you put your hope in your money or your jobs, all of those things are shaking. And we're finding out just along with everybody else that the things that we thought would last forever are temporary the things that we thought we could count on aren't eternal. The places we thought we could put our trust, they let us down. And our whole world is dealing with this at the same time. And our whole world is desperate for hope. There are people that you care about that are desperate for hope because the place that they thought they could put their life in has just fallen out from under them. There are people you work with who are desperate from hope, for hope, for a real place they can put their trust. And they're looking, they're looking for people who aren't freaking out. <laughs> like, I don't know how else to put it. They're looking for people who have a supernatural peace. They, they're looking for people, they're looking for people who aren't yelling. They're looking for real hope in a hopeless time. And the question that's on my mind for, for me that, that the Holy Spirit's been prompting me with every single day through this. And, and I hope that he works on you with this question too. The question that's been on my mind is they're looking for hope in a hopeless time. Will they see it in me? Will they see it in you? Or will they see the same fear and concern 
and lack of hope that we're all in the middle of. My friends, Jesus came and lived and died so that we could have hope in the resurrection, that we could be set free from, from the sickness of sin. Uh, and, and that sickness of sin is, is what's behind the ways that we hurt and abuse and, and mess people up and, and that we could be set free from the, si- the sickness of death. And so if you've never accepted that hope, I want to invite you to do that today. Uh, maybe you've forgotten about that hope. Maybe you've seen some of the places you thought you could put your trust fall away and, and you don't know what to do next. And, and my friends, we're all feeling it, but there is something more solid that you can put your trust in. And maybe you have, and maybe you did a long time ago, but you're realizing now that you, you haven't been trusting in God. You haven't been trusting the resurrection. You've been trusting in, in your job or your home or, or your plans. I invite you, whoever you are, if you've ever done this before, to pray with me. Uh, this, this, simple, this simple prayer. Uh, Lord God, I can't save myself as the ground's shaking. Lord God, the places that I have put my hope in let me down, and I let other people down every single day. Lord, I'm not enough to handle this. I'm not enough to be good on my own. But I believe, Lord, that you died and rose for me so that I can count on you both in this life and forever. Because you died and rose again, Lord, I ask that you make me new. In your name, amen. If you've prayed that with me today, or if you've never prayed that before, um, but if you prayed it today, I want to remind you that you've been forgiven of your sin, that God is at work transforming you. But, but above that, and, and really this is the main point of Jesus walking out of the tomb, above and beyond that, you have the promise of the resurrection to cling on to. That one day when the, the graves right over there are emptied, when the world ends, when everything goes back into the box, when Jesus and God remakes a new creation, he'll remake you as well, just like Jesus' body. In the in-between time, you'll dwell, uh, you'll dwell with, with your Father. But know that that's the hope, that if you prayed that prayer, your future is secure in Christ. And on that day when the saints rise from the grave and the tombs are empty, not just Jesus, but all of those on that Easter, you'll know that you're secure in Christ and you'll look back on this moment and on the most difficult moments of your whole life and you'll think, ah, that's how God was there. Ah, it is a good news story after all. Ah, love wins in the end. And that is a beautiful thing, my friends. And so I hope that over the next um, week that God gives you opportunities to be people of hope and peace and love in a world marked by fear and hate and anger. Thanks for listening to our podcast. You can find out more about us and join our live streams at facebook.com slash Bethel Covenant Church. Thanks and have a great week.